Welcome to All Things Church Planting, a podcast dedicated to empathize with and empower the church planter. We aim to walk alongside you in your unique calling through real stories and relevant topics. We're a production of the 80 Plus Million Initiative of the Central Region of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. You can check us out at 80plusmillion.org. Here are your hosts, Justin Thornton, coming from Glass City, USA, and Todd Sovine, coming from his aggressively creepy basement. Welcome to All Things Church Planning. It's been a while since we've been with you. We're excited to be back with you, although I'm missing my co-host. My co-host typically comes in a creepy basement background, and he's not with us this time. We'll miss his wisdom. We'll miss uh, the joy that he brings to the podcast, but we have a lot of wisdom uh, with us this this morning, uh, at least wherever you're at. It might be in the afternoon where you're at, um, and th- these are guys that we're going to call OGs, which if you don't know, that means original gangsters is that is that what you guys came to the conclusion of? is that what og means to you i thought it meant old goat <laughs> my wife calls me old guy so you know <laughs> original gangster is a lot better than old goat and old guy um to us it means you went before us you did some original things and we're standing on your shoulders i think some of the assumptions that we make as church planners as we go into a city with some sort of bravado, and we think that we're going to change a city. We think that we're the first ones there when there, not only was Jesus there, Holy Spirit was there in and working through other leaders, and we're standing on their shoulders and their legacy and their background and their faithfulness and their sacrifice. And I walked into this similar apostolic role of church planning director, and which is to recruit, assess, coach, train, and support church planners. And realized pretty quickly that I'm standing on the shoulders of, of gentlemen like you and women like you guys and uh, people who have went before me. And we just, we just couldn't wait to get you guys on the screen and just have you talk about what church planning has meant to you, where, it, where it's been and where it's going. Uh, you have the, the ability to look in the rear view, um, but not stay in the rear view, uh, look through the windshield and have the perspective of the rear view. Uh, some things that we've run into uh, you have the perspective as you've seen the church change, and you know that the church is changing like crazy. I mean, we're we're part of the hospice team that's kind of walking toward death. Some of the things that we used to give ourselves to, and now we're also on the birthing new team to to birth new new movements and new church planning things. And I'm uh, just really excited about what God has done in you. And we know that it was Jesus in you before I, I embarrass you um it, it's all jesus in us right i mean i just i just had a person come up to me after ser- the service one day and was like, that service was awesome although i know it was jesus in you and you probably sucked and i thought that was a great uh, he was so he was so raw in it too i don't think he was joking so i th- just thought his theology is beautiful and uh, i think we know that it was jesus in you guys the whole way and so we're grateful to just hear from you and 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 hear what god has done in your life and so welcome, uh, John Soper and Dave Reynolds. Hello. Hello. Hey, yeah, let's let's just intro you guys. Tell us about uh, your story, how, how Jesus found you, how you got into church planting, and, and then your current role, what you're doing right now. Well, I, I defer to the OOG, the outstanding original gangsta, John. <laughs> or the, the VOG, the very old goat. <laughs> I certainly never meant to be a church planner. 
in fact, I never meant to be a pastor. And in fact, I never even meant to be a Christian. Uh, Jesus found me while I was in my first year of grad school working on a PhD in philosophy. And uh, that's a story for another time. But uh, after a few years of seminary, uh, which I originally started just, just to kind of get my theological pin, pins under me. And then God called me into ministry along with my wife who married me on the condition that I wouldn't be a pastor, but he called her too. And uh, so we ended up 1973, very first day of the new year, moved into a, a brand new house and we were going to church plant. Back then, I think that what it really meant is nobody else wanted us to do anything. So they, they let us try and plant a church instead. Um, and um, in that church plant, learned a lot of things about how not to do it. But uh, God was gracious. And uh, I thought at that point, well, we'll do this first church plant. And then, then I'll get a real job with a real salary and a real church. Um, and a few years later, I got a phone call from my district superintendent. And he said, hey, uh, we need to plant a church in another community about 30 miles away. Uh, would you do it? And I immediately declined uh, because I thought I had learned two things about planting churches. The first thing that I thought I had learned was that if you're going to be a good church planter, you probably ought to have the gift of evangelism because it's all about calling new people to Christ. And the second thing I'd learned was that I didn't have that gift. Been in that place for three years, built a church, uh, not a building, a people. Uh, had about 70 people who are learning to love each other, learning to love Jesus. Um, and learning to love Jesus was easier than learning to love each other, but they were learning. And uh, the hard thing was none, none of them were new believers. I did everything I knew how to do, but uh, I just didn't see anybody come to Christ in that place. There was a church before there wasn't a church, so I wasn't a total failure, but uh, um, I certainly wasn't about to re-up to do it again. I thought the conversation was over and the DS called me the next day and asked me the same question, except he said, has God changed your mind yet? And four days later, after four successive days of conversations with the DS, God had changed my mind and we went on to plant a second church. First time I learned how not to do it. Second time I learned a little bit more about how it's going, but I did something like theology doesn't, doesn't allow for. I cut a deal with God and I said, mm -hmm. I'll go through this if you show me how people come to know Jesus. And what do you know? He did. Mm. And in that next place, we saw about four or 500 people come to know Jesus in the first three years. And over a 10 year period between 1973 and 1983, God did something I never could have imagined. And we saw nine new churches planted uh, and mm. a couple of thousand people come to know Jesus. Um, after that, uh, the Alliance asked me to go to Australia and teach people how to start churches. I still didn't know how to do it, but I tried to do that. I was there for several years, then came back, and I was a church planning director in the Metropolitan District and the district superintendent, and then uh, did some, some other things at the national office. And uh, I've come full circle now, and I retired a couple of years ago, and uh, now I'm in my happy place. I'm in a church plant, helping mm. another pastor start a new church. He happens to be my son-in-law, so it's lots of fun. Wow. Um, and seeing people 
come to know Jesus again. And that's where mm. it's at. Mm. In my retirement, I do some work in leadership development for the Metropolitan District uh, and for the Alliance. So I do some coaching, but uh, mostly it's about seeing churches get planted. Mm. That's so awesome. I, I love that lesson for young leaders and new leaders and old, old leaders alike that if we don't have something I think we use all these self-awareness tests to uh, build crutches instead of instead of bridges into something new that Jesus could do, right? And, and instead of you saying, I don't, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to evangelize, you ask Jesus to fill in um, where, where you weren't capable. And man, that's, that's a great story. And that's how we started to build new converts in something that you didn't have. I love that. Um, thanks for that. Dave, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I will. But man, great to hear. John, they, they call you super soper. And I kind of get that. We know it's Jesus in you, but still, I think the name is <laughs> it's fitting. That's pretty amazing. Um, I guess I'll go with John in as much as saying that uh, I'm an unlikely church planner. That was nowhere on my grid. I uh, moved to Southern California when I was 20 years old to uh, actually to go into music that uh, great selfless occupation where there's no narcissism at all and trying to, <laughs> trying to be a rock star. So <laughs> that's where I started from. I was a believer, um, but I was just kind of all over the map, really. And I came down when I was 20 years old and miraculously, truly miraculously, God put me in a wonderful church where I learned grace and truth. And uh, People kind of loved me where I was and showed me kindness and showed me grace. And I met the guys that are, have been my mentors all my life. And I met my beautiful wife there. And I just started dabbling in the college group. And um, as I did so, uh, I was drawn toward the church and drawn toward these people. And it was fun and grace and truth. And uh, at some point, the guys started challenging me toward ministry. And I kind of thought they were nuts. And then at another point, one of the guys who became my mentor said, uh, I think you're a church planter. And I said, well, what's that? Because I really thought that that was somebody <laughs> who handled the plants around the church. I knew nothing about it. But what I found out was it was guys who started things. And that kind of fit with me because I never quite painted inside the lines. I wasn't exactly rebellious. I could be, but I wanted to do different things. And I finally understood that there was a ministry place for that, maybe even a gifting to kind of go in different directions. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we got married and they sent us out from that church. What, what I call a greenhouse, they were a greenhouse. They raised up leaders. And if they saw that apostolic gift, they would send those people. So they sent us to Huntington Beach, California. And we launched a church there called Shore Life Church in 1991. And, uh, I, there were Sundays I didn't think we would make it through the next Sunday, but by God's grace, we just got to celebrate last year the 30-year anniversary of that church, which was mm. uh, just the grace of God. God. And since I had come from a church that raised us up and sent, out, sent us out, I just thought that's what you're supposed to do. And so by God's grace, he sent us more leaders. And almost every year we were there, we were able to send some guys out, and we got to celebrate the 25-year anniversary of one of those recently. We went from there up to the Northwest in the late 90s, and I joined a, my mentor and friend, a guy named Matt Hannon at New Heights Church and started a church planning center where we would discover, uh, by God's grace, discover, develop, and deploy leaders and church planters. So we did that for five years, and then I got the bug to plant again, which I thought was crazy because the Northwest was kind of my dream job. 
Um, so we talked to New Heights about it and they were willing to send us. And I had a good friend in Northwest Church Planning up there who was part of the Alliance. And I didn't know the Alliance at all, except I loved the reputation of the Alliance because we were kind of a multi-denominational group and I just loved the spirit. So my friend up there introduced me to a guy named Bill Malik, who was another OG. And so we sort of parachute dropped back to Southern California and uh, launched a church here in 2004, led that for 10 years, and then also handed that off to just a, a good uh, Alliance pastor who now leads that church called The Awakening now here in Southern California. And then I connected with the national office, uh, did some national church planting, and uh, now I work in the Western region, and I'm also the district superintendent for South Pacific. And then along the way, crazy as it sounds, we had never tried house church or anything like that. So four or five years ago, my wife and I decided to just use the gifts that we have and do what we could while still being full time. So we started an online, I mean, started a house church. And then when COVID hit, it went online. And now a lot of our folks are kind of all over the place. So we're still between house and online trying to figure this thing out and just learning how much we don't know about church planting. <laughs> yeah, we're still in it uh, a day at a time. I'm still unlikely. I, I'm surprised, but we'll give it our best shot. A, a favorite verse in Second Corinthians 12 is that God's power is perfected in our weakness. Yeah. I used to try to boast a lot in strengths, and I find myself slowly boasting more and more in weakness because that's about all I got. So his grace yeah. is sufficient. Yeah. I was about... There's a lot of years uh, of experience on the screen here. As as you guys look across the history of uh, of church planting, and you think about where it's at now, the movement of the church, the movement of church planting. Describe where you think church planting is at right now. Where where is it at? Is it are we in dire circumstances? Are we in a leadership shortage? Are you encouraged by things? Where is the where is the current state of church planting? Go ahead, Dave. It's a great question, Justin, and I'll I'll look forward to John's answer on that, and I'll be taking that. <laughs> um, I think in some ways we're at a crossroads. Uh, we've had this amazing thing happen to us, which has been a real hardship in a global pandemic and now political unrest. But as I look back at, and I'm, I'm no great theologian or historian or anything else, but as I look back on the first century, it seems that the church thrived under persecution and God used a very hard thing for a very good purpose. And I think what he did in the first century, he wants to do in the 21st century. This time it's not persecution, it's a pandemic. And I think coming out of that, there can be a new awareness and if we're willing to embrace uh, our ancient truths in brand new ways, my hope is that we can be on to the next great awakening in this country. If we're willing to take risk, if we're willing to innovate, if we're willing to not try to go back to what we thought normal was, I think we're in a great position right now. But it's, it's unknown in many ways what it's going to look like in terms of methodology. Yeah, Dave, what, what are some of those... What are some of those ancient truths that we need to embrace in a new way? Well, it's still the power of the church. It's the power of the Jesus spirit, the Holy Spirit working through believers. It's life by life, the power of one life, 
the pursuit of God for one person in a neighborhood. It's the power of one church that is willing to embrace the spirit and to give itself away. It's the power of one transformed city. It's Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, or as the Beatles put it, here, there, and everywhere. I think the spirit is still doing that, but our methodologies have to change. And in, in some ways, uh, when, when John, John was one of the real innovators on this and can kind of wrote the book in some ways on what, what was happening in the 70s and 80s and stuff, and I'm trying to figure it out myself in the early 90s, but if we try to stick to those old methodology scripts, I don't know that we're going to get where we need to go because we need to innovate as the spirit leads us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I just read in Acts 16, uh, Paul wants to go up into Asia or Asia Minor, wherever that is, he's going there. And the, and the spirit says in the Macedonian vision, no, nah, don't go there. You guys got to come mm-hmm. over here. And I think mm-hmm. this is one of those times to really heed what the spirit is telling us. Cause it's not going to necessarily be the old forms and the old ways They can still work, but we've, the spirit has to be driving it, not the methodology driving it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting. I have four, probably four church planners in the same exact phase right now, which is they're trying to figure out how to gather core teams well. Uh, they, they, need, they need bodies to, to live out their mission. And, that, you know, we, I, I was talking about our first, you know, 20 to 40 people. And they're like, what was your rhythm? What did you do? I'm like, man, we just ate and prayed and taught the Bible. And, you know, we did some outreach in our neighborhood and we evangelized. We, we didn't do it. It was the most boring answer in, in terms of creativity. And when that was during the, the, the creativity movement where everybody was doing everything. I mean, we were the least creative bunch in, in the world. But we just looked at Acts 2 and we just wanted, we just longed for that. And yeah. Yep. It was just the ancient nature of this is what Jesus created us to do. This is how he created us to live in, in this love community and breathe it out and experience relationship through his spirit. Like that's just how it, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just, I, I resonated so much with how do we go back to our ancient principles and, and in, a, in a new way. Um, John, how, how would you answer that same question? I, you know, I, what I want to say, I, I came in totally wrong. It, it uh, was very apparent almost as soon as I ended up with this this moniker, church planner, that I had no idea what I was doing. So I did what any other reasonably uh, intelligent young man would do. I went to the bookstore and I bought every book there was on church planning. Did that today, you go bankrupt quick. But back in those days, there were only a few. Mm-hmm. There was a book by some guy named Kennedy on how he did it in Coral Ridge, Florida. And there was another book by a guy named Harold Thicket on how he did it in Southern California. And and, and Schuler probably had one book out by that time. And and uh, uh, and, and so I, you know, I'm going to learn from the guys who know how to do it. Right? I read their books. I memorized the. The, the spiel that, that, that Kennedy had, by the way, the gospel outline he, he mailed was really good. The rest of the spiel, probably not so much, especially not now. But I, I, I was going to follow the methodologies of the people who were successful. You know, fast forward five or 10 years, and now you got the beginnings of the church growth movement. And uh, fast forward another five years, and you got the mega church movement starting. And everybody's trying to copy what these famous pastors of these bigger churches are are, are doing. And uh, 
never works very well. It never works very well. And I think one of the things that, one of the great insights over 50 years, took me 50 years to figure this out, is that uh, the best textbook on how to plant a church is the book of Acts. You, know, mm. you guys both referred to it. And, mm. and, and uh, there, there's a lot to learn about how to plant churches if you just read the book of Acts. And mm. the cool thing is that in the book of Acts, they were only doing what they saw Jesus do before them. Mm. And, and uh, the real textbook is the Gospels. Mm. You know, I, I am more convinced than I've ever been at this late juncture in my life that Jesus didn't just tell us what to do. He showed us how to do it. Mm. It hasn't got anything to do with programming or buildings or, uh, you know, any specific methodology uh, other than the simple method of Jesus and the style of Jesus of entering into relationship with people, living incarnationally, giving away his life, and just doing life with people. Mm -hmm. One of the great disappointments for me in that first church planning experience that it was so, so hard was the realization that, you know, I'd been through seminary. I knew how to parse the Hebrew. <laughs> I, I could exegete a passage in the Greek New Testament. I even thought I could write a good sermon. I, I later had to change my mind about that. Um, <laughs> it took me about seven years before I preached anything that I would even consider listening to. Uh, but uh, no one taught me how people come to know Jesus. Nobody taught me how to disciple people. And in fact, I think the greatest missing piece in, the, in, in most of the church planning, church growth movement that, that I lived through and, and sadly and at some points tried to lead uh, is that uh, we missed the whole point. We were all, mm. all about building bigger, bigger, bigger churches. And mm. we forgot that Jesus is about making disciples. And that's the core. And how yeah. do you do that? You do it by doing life with people. Mm. Yeah. You hang out with them. You live with them. You eat with them. You bless, with them. bless them. And, and then, strangely enough, you know, the, the, the promise of, of Jesus comes true. I will build my church and mm -hmm. the gates of hell won't stand against it. It's not yeah. about what the church planners do, and it's certainly not about what methodology you're using, uh, unless that methodology is a simple method uh, of doing what Jesus did and expecting his spirit to show up and bless it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that I, I guess we would say that that's probably the biggest landmine of the last 25 years is us building these narcissistic towers as opposed to the to the kingdom of God. And what would you say the the landmines are coming up? Like if you were to forecast, um, I mean, this is this is pretty easy to point out the last 25 years at this point, because we 
we have all sorts of podcasts and stories and uh, many of our many of our favorite leaders have fallen off those towers and we've watched them fall off those towers and um, so we have solid examples but now we have a new a new wave coming and I'm wondering if you can forecast some some landmines uh, that might be coming up church planners how we as disciple making leaders can impact in a countercultural way our society more than the society impacts and changes us. Mm. I don't think that's a new mm. challenge. I think it looks different in every generation. I mean, you guys are planting churches right now. You're dealing with, with gender issues that, that make my hair, well, I don't have any, but would make my hair curl. If you had some, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. That, that's, that's a whole new thing. But it's really no different than the issues we had to work through. Mm -hmm. It's a different issue. It's a different way in which the culture is attempting to impact the church. Um, and we've got to figure out, you know, how do we do what Jesus did? Mm -hmm. How do we stand against the culture of our day, especially the, the Pharisaical culture of the church? Because uh, the church today, as Pharisees, just like first century church did, um, mm. and, and love people and accept people uh, in such a way that their hearts are drawn toward Jesus, um, so that the spirit of Christ um, changes them and changes the society and the culture around them more than the culture infiltrates the church. Okay. Because every one of these failures, every one of these men that we looked up to that we thought were leaders of the pack, they're just examples of how the culture crept in and, and, and undermined everything that they were trying sincerely to do mm -hmm. and then brought them down. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they started that way, right? It didn't, it didn't start going, I can't wait to fall off this tower that we build i think they were sincerely chasing something good but you're right that it was infiltrated by what a good word yeah appreciate that dave how, do, how would you respond to that question well, it's just a great word and i'm just i'm still back with john's thoughts about the example of acts and the example of the gospels and the example of where jesus went and it seems even on that issue you know you would find Jesus, we, we say it a lot with the last, the least, and the lost, but if you do a study of where he was, he's with all the unlikely people that everybody else rejected, and he went up against the big blocks of opposing forces, so he'd go up against the Pharisees, but the way he got to them was one-on-one, -on -one. so there's Nicodemus, you know, he'd go, he'd go hang out with the outcast group of people, but it would be an individual within that that he would reach, and so I think we'll still be up against that. I think he wouldn't advocate where, where things are going in terms of, you know, uh, a lot of the things in lifestyles today and everything else, but you would see him loving the person individually that was part of that group. And I think the church will still work that way by the power of, as John was saying, life on life. They'll see the attraction and the love of Jesus and the Holy Spirit if we're willing to 
not embrace the thoughts or the theology or anything else of these groups, but make sure that we're there with them. So I think a landmine is going to be that the trend in the past has been the come to us thing. If you build it, they will come. I mean, we said that after Mm -hmm. Field of Dreams and in the 90s, but Mm -hmm. if you build it, they don't care. (laughs) Now it's, it's, right? They don't care if you built something. We're going to have to go be where the people are. (laughs) in neighborhoods, life by life. And I think a landmine, one of them is going to be our impatience because in some ways it may be slower. I'm trying to hang with my neighborhood and my cul-de-sac and it's life on life over time. And it may, we're now in a process of maybe years, but something is happening in those years. That's one of them. And then the other one, I think, speaking of some of the things that have happened in the past, it's still a landmine and it's going to be the character issues that, the leaders face, the enemy's always going to try to get us to go to the old temptations and everything. Um, I'm finding in, in, as I look back on things in my own experiences where I've had the great conflict in churches, it has never been a lack of mission. It's never been a lack of lost people. The issues have been my own shortcomings as a person the issues can be family things when the, the enemy is going to try to chip away at a marriage. And as the marriage goes, so goes the church. The, the, the landmine is going to be the care of a family because you're trying to lead a, a, a marriage and you're trying to lead a family while you're trying to lead a church. The landmines are going to be the believers within that church who just can't get along. And then the landmines are going to be a church that gets just narcissistic or self-preserving that refuses to give itself away. So I think there's other things out there, but I don't think the culture on this one is exactly our enemy in terms of landmines. Um, I mean, it can be, but I think a lot of that's going to be the internal stuff where where you just kind of blow up. Yeah. Good word. That's a good segue to the the next question about about leadership, because I think while we were trying to find leaders, recruit leaders and train them up, we were trying to train them up for that specific methodology to be able to be this maverick renegade who's really good in front of people, all-star communicator, um, because they needed to sustain those those methodologies that we were building, that we were falsely building um, out of good sincerity, but we were falsely building and now we know that we kind of want leaders to look a little bit different than that. <laughs> we, we want leaders, um, and, I, and I won't, I won't uh, bury the lead here, so, but, but we want leaders to look a little bit different than that. How, how, would you, how would you characterize the leaders that we're looking for for the next 10 to 20 years of church planting? You know, we, this is a, another way in which I think the culture of my generation, uh, certainly in a negative way, infiltrated the church and influenced us because in, in, in the church growth movement in the in the in the years of, of looking and seeing mega churches were, were were what we wanted to, to aspire to by the way that that whole model never rang very true because um I happened to be pastoring a really large church back at the beginning of the 90s and for, for that time, a large church. And um, we were approached by, by Christianity Today. They were doing a, a, a survey, uh, trying to figure out what the, what the secret sauce was in, in, the, in these big churches. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, the, the bait to get us into the survey was we would get the, the survey results before anybody else and we could make the adaptations we needed to, to make to stay at the head of the pack. And, and mm -hmm. uh, um, by the way, it's the only church I ever pastored uh, up to that time that I hadn't planted myself. And mm -hmm. it was the toughest experience I've ever had mm -hmm. and the least positive in terms of, of total impact for the kingdom. Enough said. But, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, it, one of the results of that survey, and this is where I was starting to go, or I hit my rabbit trail. When you get old, you do that. Um, uh, one, one of the things that, that uh, came out of that was that we, we realized that in the, the, the top 5% of all the churches in the United States in terms of average attendance, up to 96% of the growth was not coming from conversion growth. Right, right. It was coming from transfer growth. And, and the whole language uh, of the, the church growth movement actually shifted a little bit at that point. And we started talking about feeder churches and receptor churches. The mm. feeder churches, the little churches, the receptor churches were these, these growing monolithic uh, monsters that, that, uh, that were just absorbing and, and mm. regionalized uh, Christianity and probably diminishing the impact of the average Christian in his local neighborhood because we were, we were regionalizing everything um, and probably diminishing the, the, the impact of, of, of believers. And, but the kinds of leaders we wanted were people who could take charge, people who could be corporate type leaders. And to mm -hmm. some degree, the paradigm still is out there, not as much. Uh, certainly the, the, the crest of the wave of the megachurch movement has broken and it's passing and we're, we're seeing something new emerge, which I hope will be a lot healthier. But um, that leader was almost the exact opposite of the servant leader that the mm. New Testament uh, describes. You know, what kind of leaders do we want? Well, we want servant leaders, people who look, smell, act, talk, think, like Jesus, um, mm. uh, and uh, that's not the kind of leaders we were trying to find for for, for our, our our church planning movements uh, back back in the the eighties and and, and uh, even into the nineties and early two thousands. So, mm. you know, I think again back to back to scripture. Mm -hmm. mm. My, my son graduated from uh, United States Military Academy at West Point. In the, in the year 2000. And I watched with some interest as he uh, went into that institution and emerged because I didn't think, I, uh, I, I didn't think he was a great leader at that point. I, hmm. I, didn't, I didn't see the potential. Um, he emerged from that process as a leader of men, but, but I learned something very early on in the process. The very, the, in your plebe year at West Point, uh, whenever you are addressed by anybody who's higher on the feeding scale than you are, and if you're a plebe, that's everybody, you know, or mm -hmm. any other, other than a plebe, uh, any, any uh, teacher, any, any janitor, and everybody's higher on the feeding scale than you. You can only answer them when you're addressed in one of four ways. You can say, yes, sir, or ma'am. You can say, no, sir, or ma'am. You can say, I do not understand, sir or ma'am, 
or you can say, no excuses, sir or ma'am. No mm. additional verbiage. That's all you can say for the entire first year of your uh, training at, at West Point. Now, the Army doesn't know anything about grace, but the Army understands a great deal about making leaders. A and uh, I queried that because that seemed pretty harsh to me. So I went to one of his professors who happened to be an elder in one of our Alliance churches. And, and, I, and I said, uh, you know, why are you so hard on these, these young people? And, and his answer was priceless. He looked me in the eye and he said, every one of these, we get 26,000 applications every year. We take 1,200 students. Uh, and every one of them was an honor society student. Almost all of them were class president or team captain. They were the, 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 the creme de la creme, the leadership in their high schools, and they all think they're leaders. And the first and most important lesson they have to learn is that before you can lead, you got to learn to obey. Good. Blew me away. Mm. Yeah. Now, what, what if when we make disciples and we uh, help to, to, to prepare people for leadership in the church, we had that same mentality? Mm -hmm. By the way, fits pretty well into the paradigm that Jesus seemed to have in training his disciples. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great word. It's good. What, 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 how, would it, how different would it look mm. when leaders emerge with that, that grid? Yeah, we need servant leaders. It's good. And I think on that, one of the trends that I hope we're getting back to is, you know, is Antioch and sending, is the gospel tabernacle and training up and sending. So I, I, I think one of the things coming up is going to be, I hope, more of us raising up than recruiting. Because if we can raise them up from within, then we have a chance to help people do exactly what John has just so aptly described in terms mm -hmm. of learning how to obey, learning how to follow, learning the character issues, rather than looking for that superstar who's going to start this thing and go big. And we've seen some, I and mean, we've had some years, all of us now, and we've seen those guys who start huge and then it just crumbles because the character wasn't there. And just a thought too on the church growth stuff. And I so appreciate John mentioning that. I just found that to be, so I planted not like John did in the seventies and eighties and nineties and beyond, but I started in the, in the nineties and I just, it was, I just found it to be an, an impossible measurement. This idea that if you're, if you're, give me a number, I don't care what it is. If you're 50 now, you better be 55 or 60 next year. If you're 200, you better be 220. If you're 2000, you better be, where does it stop? And if somehow it, the, the church goes like this, then suddenly you're in decline or you're plateauing or look out and we see all these pastors who's move out and we call them failures because the church wasn't on this impossible skyrocket that can never end. I'm, I'm ranting here a little bit, but, but I, think, I think churches have um, lifespans just like people do. There's no church in Ephesus exactly the way it was before, but I think their legacy is not lived out by the same local church that's able to continually grow forever. Their legacy of growth is lived out by who they send and who they send, and then off it goes. So anyway, I think we're, we're talking about the kind of leaders coming up 
I think we're back to the grassroots leadership in some ways, which means a lot of things. You know, we'll talk about assessment, coaching, training, and support. And I'm just rethinking right now and redoing a lot of things in our own assessment. We're not assessing for the superstar speaker or leader. Maybe we're assessing for someone who can lead a healthy house church of 40 or 50 people that's willing to give themselves away. You know what I mean? So a lot of our measurements need to change. I forget what the question was originally, Justin. I think, what are we looking for in the next 10 years or something like that? I'll stop. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're hitting it on the, on the head, which is the, the type of leader that we're looking for. And our, our measurements determine that type of leader. And if we're looking for big and uh, polarizing or visible, then that's the type of leader we're looking for. But if we're looking for humble servant leaders who will give themselves away and be generous and and be leaders, be, be, be leaders that we see in scripture, uh, then we're going to get the type of movements that we want. Um, and so you answered that question for sure. And, and I think this, I think that kind of leads us to maybe what might be your favorite question as, as church planning OGs, which is, you know, if, if we're assessing coaching and finding these leaders uh, and the, the movement is going to go, the way that we dream of, I, I think we all just, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be enough is if we woke up one day and said, we got to really be a part of a movement um, of God. I think it'd be enough. <laughs> I don't really need anything else. I mean, I hope obviously my kids and my wife are happy, healthy and strong and love Jesus and mm-hmm. all those things. But next to that, yeah, if I just, if I just see God move, man. Um, and so what are the risks? that we're going to want to take, need to take um, as apostolic leaders to see that movement go. Obviously, Jesus is going to, he's the leader of the movement. He's the God of the movement. It's going to go, and it's going to go in a way that maybe we didn't see. It's a bit like anointing. You know it when you see it, but you you didn't know how you got there. (laughs) You you you, You can't formulize it or strategize it but if, if you could say here's some risks that i think we're going to need to take what would, there, what would uh, those risks be one of the things that i think, think it means see let me let me back up a second because when when i'm trying to describe the kind of leader i want to see it really drives me back to asking a more simple question which what's a what's a disciple look like you know, mm-hmm. what does it really look like to be a disciple what does it look like to be a fully discipled person? Because a leader has to be that before he or she is anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the past few years, you know, we've kind of wrestled with this in, in, in the, the church that I served in the church that I'm serving right now. And I kind of got my own working definition that, that a leader is a person, a fully discipled person. And a fully discipled person will always be a leader, though they may not be the primary leader, but they'll always be mm-hmm. a leader of others. And, and, and a fully discipled person is a person who, uh, it, my, my humble definition, who identifies with Christ in baptism. I'm thinking Matthew 28, 18 to 20 here, who uh, obeys his commands, same passage, and who shares Jesus' values and Jesus' priorities. Um, back a decade or so ago, we had when I was at the national office, we kind of spelled that out with seven core values. And I still think they work pretty well. Um, Me too. 
not that they are the only ones that, that we mm. might hit on. But, you know, th this is what a fully discipled person looks like. Well, why aren't we getting those kinds of people in our churches? And the, the, the simplest answer I can give to that is uh, what, what I, I've heard called the Luke 643 principle. Luke 643 says, uh, might be verse 42, I think it's 43. A well-trained student looks just like his teacher. Mm. The reason we're not getting those kind of disciples is because we aren't, our leaders aren't those kind of people. Um, mm. So one of the great risks of, of leadership, of being a leader in a church planning movement moving forward, is that you've got to you got to be vulnerable enough to let people into your life the same way Jesus let people into his life. The mm -hmm. same way Paul let people into his life, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't a one hour on Sunday morning thing or a three hour on Sunday morning or a, a five hours dispersed throughout the week thing. And then I go back to my own cave and my own tribe and my own right. nuclear family. It was pretty much, they did life 24 seven. And, and they learned how to be disciples by watching Jesus and by learning from him. And you move one generation up into the book of Acts, and that's exactly what's going on in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And then you, you get Paul. My scary verse for me as a church planner is, um, or as a, as a leader, is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul says, you follow me while I follow Christ. Mm. Can I be that kind of a leader? Am mm. I going to invite people into my, into my life, into my home, into my private space, into my, uh, my everyday 24-7, this is what I'm doing today? Mm. Because if I want to build leaders who are Apostolic leaders think that's what it costs. Mm -hmm. And that's a big price to pay. That's that's interesting, John. We're we're trained up in some ways in church planting of the past, the past several years and the stuff that we've talked about to be the perfect leader the perfect pastor and there's a temptation there to hide your, your stuff because you gotta be the superstar on the stage and you gotta be this or that. But the reality of what you described, John, and Jesus is a servant leader is that power comes when we share our stuff. And so that's real different from, from what it's been in some ways. So that kind of vulnerability is really a risk. I've seen that in my neighborhood when I've just, you know, I hang out more in my neighborhood probably than I ever have just because of the way things work in my ministry flow. And it's been the times of weakness that I've probably had the most impact. They just see I'm just a dude trying to figure it out. Uh, and we'll see where all that goes. Who knows? But I, I think so that's certainly a risk. I think then as we as we plant, if we're really going to be truly apostolic, the sent ones would go where there wasn't anything happening. They didn't go to what's mm. popular. And church planting has become so popular, you can jump into church planting without being a sent one, I think. So I think truly apostolic is going to mean going where people haven't been reached and doing something different. And I think there's a risk there. And I think then if that works and we have a church by God's grace that comes out of it, there's going to become a real risk to just 
bring everything in and, and grow big rather than the risk that comes with giving our best away. Mm-hmm. I came from a church, the church that I, from way back, uh, my mentor used the phrase, um, we want to be a church that gives itself away. And that always stuck with me. And I found that to do that, though, I mean, if you've got a Paul and a Barnabas, you, you don't send them out. Mm-hmm. You put them on staff and keep them there forever. But it's really, gonna, really, I mean, come on. You're just an idiot if you, if you yeah. send those guys. But it's the great ones that say, I'm going to take the best leaders and it's going to cost me personally. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost my growth. It's going to cost my time. It's going to, I'm going to have gray hair and less of it. If I send these guys out, I think there's a risk there and there's probably more, but that's probably enough. Oh, yeah. now that, that I got one more. I got one more. I also think there's a risk that comes when we, see something that's coming forward and we need to challenge the church that we're involved with, or we even need to challenge the organizations that we're with. And I think of A.B. Simpson with, with the original Presbyterian church, there was risk in challenging the norms to go do what needed to be done. And if we're going to innovate and really follow the spirit on this, we're going to have to mess with some things. And that's, that's always risky and it's not always a good career move, but it's, I think what we're called to do at times. Or something idiots and, and we shouldn't challenge things at all we gotta we really gotta listen to the spirit on that one to see what there's discernible risk there we, get, we have to discern which is which in that moment but yeah that's, that's a, right. absolutely that's right yeah man i'm grateful for you guys i'm i'm hoping for part two um because i, I just think there's there's a lot here um and i'm just grateful that you know we we came on here and we could have talked about a number of things but you guys just talked about Jesus and um, you talked about being humble leaders who follow Jesus and love people and uh, bring, bring the heart of Jesus to the lost and the broken. And that for me is why you guys are the leaders that you are. And that that's why we brought you on here because we knew we could trust that that was going to happen. And so I'm grateful for you. And I, I can't wait to talk to Todd about part two. Thank you for being so, generous with your time and generous with us. Why don't you guys take care? Great. Thanks so much. An honor to be with you guys and to be with John. Really appreciate it. It's, a, it's an honor. Glad to be with you.